So how are we doing tonight, sisters? Are you there? Are you awake? Are you ready to rumble? So um, technologically impaired, as I shared last week, if you were here last week, you got to hear me confess um, to being a, um, what was it, an urban Amish. Um, Though I am technologically impaired, I have recognized the great value of becoming technologically savvy, um, especially as a mom of a teen and young adult daughters. Um, Being able to navigate how they use technology gives you quite quite a window into their lives and their hearts. And most recently, I have been stalking their music playlists. You know, in the olden days, we would create a playlist based on, you know, we could just create a CD, we could pull some things offline, but now we've got these sites like Pandora and Spotify um, that are just these more recent advances in technology, and if you're not familiar with them, they will create a playlist for you based on a song or an artist. So you just give them one song or one artist, and they'll create a list for you of like music. So there's a variety of playlists you can create. Um, They can be from workout to zone out. Um, But what intrigues me the most are the relationship or love playlists, especially having young adult daughters. In my admittedly limited research, underscore, admittedly limited research, when it comes to the love playlists, especially the secular realm, there's basically two camps that you can kind of dump them into. There's the I need someone to love or I'm nothing Or there's the, I don't need anyone to love, and in fact, I just need to love myself, and I don't want anyone to love me. Camp, right? It's all the power within. So the, I've got to have someone love me or I'm nobody, you get lyrics like, you're my end and you're my beginning. I'm going to give you my heart, and I don't care, go and tear me apart. And then then on the, I don't need anybody, you got the, I'm going to love myself. I don't need anyone else. I love me. And then there's no better you than the you that you are. Music that will just keep telling you this. But we know from experience, ladies, don't we, that neither giving our hearts recklessly, which would be the first playlist, nor keeping our hearts locked up tightly, which would be the second playlist, leads to any kind of human flourishing, right? Both lead to failure. Both lead to loss of life. Yet, if we are honest, each of us have a tendency towards one of these. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but if you want to, there's probably about more than half of us that are more reckless. We just give our hearts wholeheartedly without, without, without concern at times too much. So, and then there's a group of us that keep our hearts incredibly locked up. We don't want to give them to anyone. For many of us, we take our love playlist into our life together as Christian community. Our hearts, as we look at our sisters and those that are called into the family of God, our hearts are either desperate, we absolutely cannot be alone, or our hearts are detached, we only want to be alone. And that's obviously extremes, but we tend to move towards one of these, if we're honest. And we've come to recognize, if we're honest, that neither lead to flourishing, for which God created us as sisters. Both lead to a lack of flourishing, to failure, to a loss of life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, I highly recommend it, is almost 100 years old, so you've got to wade through some of the language. I mean, he's incredibly bright as well. But in his book, Life Together, he says, Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. There's a caution 
for both those of us who are reckless and for those of us who lock up our hearts. What we find throughout God's word and specifically in our study this week of 1 Thessalonians is that Christianity is intended to be a life lived together. For together, there is life. For this, though, we must give our hearts, as we see Paul and Silas and Timothy do. But notice that they don't give their hearts recklessly, they give them purposefully. Paul, Timothy, and Silas are far from detached, as we saw this week and as we'll unfold more tonight. They gave their hearts fully to their new brothers and sisters in Thessalonica. Yet, they gave their hearts not recklessly, but purposefully. They gave it in light of the coming of Jesus. So will you stand with me as we take a look at this? First Thessalonians two seventeen, three through ten. Lord, as we open your word, the living word, the very words of you, God, we pray that you will send them out. That they will accomplish that for which you send them, that we will surrender to the Spirit's work in our hearts and our minds, that you will keep us alert in both heart and mind to what you want to say and surrender to the work that you want to do in us through it. We praise you and we thank you that you would give us your word, that you would reveal yourself to us. And we praise you and we thank you for the freedom we enjoy to open it freely tonight. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So 1 Thessalonians 2, beginning in verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, then Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you were always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy we feel for your sake before God as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself, our Lord Jesus, direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. You can have a seat. Thank you, God, for your holy word. So here we find that Christianity is life together. For together there is life. From this passage, I want us to take a look at the nature and the necessity of our life together and then the nurturing 
of that life together that brings life. So let's first look at this nature. When we look at Paul and Silas and Timothy and the Thessalonians, we see relational intensity, right? Okay, I think of myself as kind of relationally intense, and Paul freaks me out, okay? He is so relationally intense. Paul has massive capacity for relational intensity. He heaps words upon words to describe the affection, the love he has for his brothers in Thessalonica. He is intensely emotional. He's anguished over being separated. What you see here is that Paul's joy is irretrievably bound up in the Thessalonians' well-being. Paul's joy is irretrievably bound up in the Thessalonians' well-being. He cannot, will not ever be detached. Listen to his words. Torn away. Great desire to see you face to face. You probably heard that at least a couple times. Bear it no longer a couple times. We live if you are standing, implying we die if you're not. With thanksgiving, we return to God for you, for all the joy we feel for your sake. Huge, intense words. From your study, you saw that torn away is a term used for children being suddenly ripped from their parents or a parent being ripped from their child. It's used for both. Paul felt emotional pain that was double. He felt pain for himself, being torn away from them suddenly, and he felt pain for them, being torn from him. It was double pain. And carrying these Thessalonians in his heart the way he did, the separation only increased his attachment to them. Okay, this guy is intense. Made me think of the time when I had left my daughter Aubrey at a mini mart at the base of the grapevine. Yes, I did that. This would be my daughter who is severely disabled, cannot speak, and can barely walk on her own. She was, I don't know, she was maybe 10 at the time, which means she was all of, you know, 15 pounds. But we were coming back. Jeff wasn't with me. I was with the four kids. We were coming back, I think, from Disneyland. We had stopped to use the restroom. I thought Austin had, my, my son had Aubrey. He thought I had Aubrey. We all get in the car. We're several miles down the 99. Now, remind you, Aubrey doesn't talk, and I have four kids, okay? So all of a sudden, I realized Aubrey's not in the car. And some of you may have heard this story. I think I've shared it before. Aubrey is not in the car. I broke every law I could think of to get back to her as fast as I could. And in that time, it was so slow because it, that, it was, you know, 15 years ago. So there were very few exits. I had to drive a long time. I, mean, I didn't break the law in terms of whipping around in the middle of the freeway. I did wait till I got to an off ramp and got back on, but it was, it was a good 10 miles. It was a good 15 minutes. And I'm thinking I'm going to be arrested. She's going to be taken from me. What is she thinking? And I'll never know because she can't talk. How does she feel that I've left her? So I finally get in and Oh, bless their hearts. There was this older couple holding on to both sides of her hand, one on one side and one on the other side. And they looked at me and I said, I'm her mother. And I just grabbed her as fast as I could. And I got out of there. I mean, I flew away from that mini mart too. It's trying to outbeat the police that were probably <laughs> coming to get me. I seriously kept watching for police. And that separation, my attachment only grew stronger My love for her grew deeper. And I think we get a sense of that with Paul. These Thessalonians are young in their faith. They aren't really speaking and walking yet, and he's been torn from them. This word for desire here is usually used in a reference to evil. Everywhere else in the New Testament, it's a word for lust. It is a strong force that is, that is so powerful, it's willing to do evil. Here, Paul uses it as a positive word to reinforce how 
the, how much he wants to get them, what, get to them, what a strong force it was within him to want to be with these Thessalonians. Yeah, he was emotionally intense. And he was also socially intense, right? So he relentless in his effort to connect and to communicate. Nothing was going to stop him except Satan, something external. Nothing internal was going to stop Paul from getting to them. And I think about that in our relationships with one another in the body of Christ, how easily we will, we will not go seek each other out. What small obstacles will stop us? There was nothing internal that could stop Paul. So great the desire to return, only satanic opposition could prevent Paul. Oh, I'd love for that to be able to be said about me, that that is the only thing that could stop me. This reference to Satan, as we're going to look at a little bit later, um, we'll look at it a little bit more later, but here I want us to see that it underscores the importance of face-to-face. We are in a highly technological age where we settle for blogs and online sermons and all of that. And ladies, there is an importance in being face-to-face. There is crucial. Being socially interdependent, coming together is so important that we have an enemy that tries to stop us. Paul, Silas, and Timothy's great desire to be with these Thessalonians awakened satanic opposition woke the devil up, if you will. Now, people wonder if this was really like, did Satan appear and strong arm Paul? What does, what does this possibly mean? The word hindered is a military term. And so because of that, a lot of commentators think that, that Paul is referring to a political um, opposition, that he's referring to the persecution that sent Paul out is the same persecution that's keeping Paul from coming in. Paul often classified throughout the New Testament any, any instrument that would oppose Christianity as being an instrument of Satan. So it's possible that Paul is laying at Satan's feet the persecution that sent him out as behind the persecution keeping him from returning. We really don't know for sure. But what we can know again, is that we have an enemy who opposes our every attempt to do life together. Now, he's not our only obstacle. As I shared earlier, we have a lot of obstacles, just our own flesh, the world, life, busyness. But Satan is one of those obstacles, and he is a very real one. There is a battle over our souls, yours and mine. We need one another. Paul puts his longing into action by sending Timothy and underscoring the power of face-to-face, the importance of coming together, together, uh, alive, together, face-to-face. God clears the way for Timothy to get there. We know this is important because God makes a way. And I believe that Timothy was not God's plan B. He was always God's plan A because God is always triumphant over the enemy. Amen. So we see this intensely emotional relationship. We see an intensely social relationship, but it's for the purpose of an intense spiritual relationship. Remember, Paul is giving his heart fully, but not recklessly. He's giving his heart purposefully for the day of the Lord to see them be purified and completed in their faith for the day of the Lord. So this intense emotional and social, it has a spiritual end. The Thessalonians standing firm are the fruit of the good news of Jesus. And nothing is more important to Paul than seeing the fruit of the good news of Jesus. Their lives being changed. Their changed lives changing other lives. Paul's joy and hope is wrapped up. Don't miss this. 
Paul's joy and hope is wrapped up in their being presented to Jesus when he returns for us. Oh, wow. Imagine if our joy and our hope was wrapped up in seeing one another being presented to Jesus, being completed in him, standing firm, awaiting his return, brides waiting. The source of Paul's intensity, both his emotional and his social, again, was this end, their spiritual well-being. See, sometimes we can be emotionally intense, and sometimes we can be pretty socially intense, but is it for a spiritual end? Is it for a spiritual end? Charles Spurgeon Speaking to his own congregation, the same kind of heart that Paul had, he said to his people, I live by your spiritual joy. I suffocate on your spiritual indifference. I choke to death on your spiritual misery. I'm tied to you. I can't help it. This is the heart of Paul. And this is to be our heart. This is the heart God wants to develop in us for one another. The Thessalonians were evidence of the gospel's power, and that's why they are Paul's crown. And this word crown would have meant a lot to the Thessalonians. Um, Crowns were given to honor an athlete or a military victor, not just recognizing their victory, but their labor and the fruit of their labor. And then those crowns were put at the feet of whatever deity that that athlete or that military person worshipped. And so they know what Paul is saying. This is the fruit of the gospel. You are that fruit, and you are what I want to lay at the feet of Jesus when he returns. The Thessalonians' failure to remain faithful would diminish Paul's own sense of fulfilling his calling. And get this, it would diminish the fullness of joy at Jesus' return. Ladies, whether we recognize that or not, that will be our reality. The fullness of joy at Jesus' return that we experience is going to be bound up in our investing in one another and our seeing one another be presented before him. Paul got this. This nature of life together marked Paul, Silas, and Timothy because they saw the necessity of this life together. This necessity caused Paul, Silas, and Timothy to not only be relationally intense, but they were inventive. If you look at this text, they're, they're quite inventive. So the life with the Thessalonians being a necessity, knowing they needed the Thessalonians and the Thessalonians needed them, Paul, Silas, and Timothy were going to be inventive. They were going to find a way to make a face-to-face happen. First thing they did is they were emotionally inventive. Now, you may not think of this as being emotionally inventive, but it really is, especially to the non-believers when they watch us. Prayer. That's pretty emotionally inventive. It's a pretty odd thing to those outside the faith. Paul prays. Seeking to shorten time and space, Paul prays, intensifying his emotional connection, intensifying his heart being bound up in theirs. When we really pray for one another, we are being emotionally inventive. We are pressing in. You can't pray for someone, especially someone who's doing evil, without it addressing the evil in your own life, right? And you can't pray to love an enemy without your heart changing towards that enemy. And you can't pray for the spiritual fruit of someone else without it changing that spiritual fruit in you. And it connects us and it bounds our hearts together. Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Life, which I highly recommend, says prayer is feisty. That is the nature of prayer. It must be before action. 
But prayer often leads to action, and it often should lead to action. And this is Paul. He is emotionally inventive. He is intensely praying. And and when he could bear it no longer, that prayer made him so emotionally connected that he couldn't bear it any longer. He had to get to them. And this word, I couldn't bear it any longer, that he says twice, is a phrase for using water being unable to be contained. Paul's eking out like that balloon that's about to pop because it's overfilled with water. He is, he is, so he sends Timothy. He becomes socially inventive. That emotional inventive of prayer helps him get creative, being socially inventive. Paul, Silas, and Timothy had to know how the Thessalonians were enduring, no matter the danger. And it was dangerous to send Timothy. Travel was hard and it was unsafe. This is a 200-mile journey, and Timothy would be doing this alone. And it would be dangerous for the Thessalonians. But he was going to do it. He was going to make it happen. Some people, some commentators think that Timothy was sent um, because he's not as high profile as Paul. Maybe he wouldn't experience the opposition, the same kind of persecution. Maybe he wouldn't be run out of town. Being half Greek, he might have fit in a little bit better. See, the necessity of face-to-face is real, but weighing the cost is important too. And through that prayer, Paul was getting creative and inventive on how to do that. And this made me think of the first time that Michelle and I were able to travel into Central Asia. And one of the key leaders in this particular country that we have since been blacklisted um, asked us to come. He, uh, when he met us the first time, we, were, we got kind of into this taxi and we were driving. You kind of have to drive all over to make sure you're not being followed. And he starts speaking to someone else in Russian. And we said, what's he saying? What's he saying? We had just met him. And he said... He's glad he was told he, the translator told us, he's just saying, he's glad you look Russian. So nobody knows why you're here. And I thought, well, I didn't know I looked Russian, but that's kind of cool. But that made me think of Timothy kind of, he could slide in. As I mentioned earlier, as a result of our time in this particular country, we have been blacklisted. And so there's, we've had to become emotionally inventive. We've had to have feisty prayers. And Michelle is an incredibly feisty prayer partner. And as a result of those feisty prayers, of really praying feisty prayers, um, God has allowed um, her to have emotional or social inventiveness. So now this very country that we are kicked out of, we are now taking those key leaders with the help of you all. We're taking them out of their country into another location. Like, we're not going to stop meeting with you. The face-to-face is crucial. They're suffering. So now this opposition created a new opportunity. We now bring them into another location. And by doing this, we actually have more time with them than we ever had in their own country. Because now we're really eating with them and we're spending the night with them and we're really becoming sisters. So what the enemy intended for evil through feisty prayer, for inventive emotional connection and inventive social connection, God is bringing about. And I just picture that with Timothy, the connection that happened. Timothy was meant to go. Timothy was blessed. They were blessed. So amazing. Yeah, Michelle's feisty prayer. She's now saying, who do you think should go instead of us? And I'm like, no. And so now I'm thinking what Paul must have been like. I don't want to send Timothy. I want to go myself. No. So weighing, yet taking risk, Tim is sent to discover what might be lacking in their faith due to, this, due to the quick separation. And Timothy does discover that there are issues. He brings these back to Paul, and we're going to see Paul address these. Due to their time being cut short, there was shortcomings in their faith. And I love that Paul can say to them, you guys are, you guys are short in your faith. See, Paul has given himself 100%, but he's given himself purposefully. So although he loves them like a father, like a mother, he's also okay saying, um, you're coming up short in some areas. He's willing to address them. 
The Thessalonians were spiritually falling short in some areas. Most important was their lack of understanding regarding suffering for their faith. And Paul hits it. Unable to go, he becomes spiritually inventive. He writes. We sometimes don't think of this as being that spiritually inventive, but that happens. We can't get to somebody, write to them. If you can't get there, and he does. Paul boldly, willingly addresses their shortcomings. Again, because his heart has not been given recklessly, but purposefully. The Thessalonians were facing great opposition for what is true and what is right. And though, as Paul reminds them, they had been taught to expect opposition, that it will happen and it must happen, to suffer publicly in their honor and shame-based society was really confusing. We don't get the idea of this honor and shame-based societies. Some of us grow up in traditions that are a little more like this, but in other parts of the world, you don't have an individual identity. You are a family identity. And when someone would come to faith, it was a shame on the entire family. If you left the gods of the family and you became a believer in Jesus, you shamed everyone. And so the opposition these Thessalonians were facing were creating all kinds of confusion for them in this society. It was real and it was hard. Paul writes to exhort these Thessalonians to remain true, to not be agitated, to not be moved. This word moved means flattery or fawning over. What was happening at this time is that teachers were coming into Thessalonica, swaying them away because of the opposition. Oh, you're, yeah, you're facing opposition. You don't, you, don't need to, you don't need to live your faith in a way that creates opposition. It's okay. They would, false teachers would come in and tickle their ears and tell them, you don't need to suffer. Just compromise. Don't live a godly life. Don't do what Paul said. You don't, have to, you don't have to be that sold out. Sound familiar? Work of the tempter. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15, Paul talks about these men. For such men are false apostles. See, they would claim to be teachers about Jesus, but they weren't. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Teachers were coming in saying they were connected to Paul and they were deceivers. And Paul was worried about these Thessalonians being moved. See, ladies, not just emotional well-being was at stake. Apostasy is real in affliction. Apostasy, fancy word, can't find another word that's more simple for it. It basically means falling away from the faith. And when we are afflicted, when we are facing opposition, any kind of suffering, there is great temptation to walk away from our faith. There's a great temptation to listen to teachings that make us feel better. When suffering, we don't want to believe it's our destiny. Am I right? Affliction... Opposition is a hotbed for the tempter to tempt us away from a life in Christ. The Thessalonians needed to be reminded of what they knew. You need to expect opposition. They had been taught the truths already by Paul that we find in 1 Peter and 2 Timothy. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Though most of us have not experienced this kind of opposition to our faith, godly lives will always be opposed. Though most of us have not experienced this kind, this level of opposition that our Central Asian sisters experienced, that the Thessalonians experienced to their faith, 
I promise you that if you live a godly life, a life in awe of and for Jesus Christ, you will experience opposition. You will have opposition within your own self that doesn't want to do it. Amen. You have opposition in the world telling you not to do it. You will have opposition from Satan. You may even have opposition within the church telling you, you don't need to make, take that kind of stand. Satan, the world, and our own flesh will work together to move us, to agitate us away from truth. Why do we find this kind of opposition or any kind of suffering for that matter? Why does it have the power to make us doubt our faith? Why is it when things are hard, for some of us we do go deeper in our faith, but why is it for most of us it's so easy to doubt? I believe this is because our hearts long for the paradise for which we are created. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that we don't want to suffer. Ladies, when God created you and I in that garden, he didn't create us to suffer. He created us for a perfect world, a pain-free world. And we lost it when we rebelled against him. Scott Sauls in his book, Jesus Outside the Line, says, The Bible locates our story in and in between time, a season of history that is sandwiched between two perfect and pain-free worlds, the Garden of Eden and the New Jerusalem, or heaven. It is because of suffering that we created when we sinned that Jesus entered into this in between time. We can sometimes get to say, why does God allow? Ladies, we brought sin into this world. And what did God allow? His one and only son to come into this suffering for us. See, when sin entered the world, so did suffering and death. We brought it. Jesus came willingly, emptied himself of his heavenly glory, took on the form of a man. He came to do life with us so that in him we could find life. Jesus came into the world to live the life we didn't and died the death we deserve so that those who trust in him can be restored to a pain-free eternity. 1 Peter 3:18 for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit ever after. Think about this and let's let it blow your mind. The only one who never needed to die is the only one who chose to die. You and I have no choice over death. We can try to choose when, but you will die and you didn't have any choice in it. Jesus was eternal. He never needed to die, yet he chose to die so that you and I would live. This is how serious God takes our suffering. This is what he's willing to pay to rescue us from it. He, Jesus, committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth, First Peter. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. As we live in this in-between time, the suffering due to sin and the opposition or persecution of Christians will only increase. 
in this in-between time, as we wait for him to return, his second coming, when he will set everything right, everything will be increasingly wrong until that time. See, the enemy activity is going to increase as Jesus' coming approaches, trying to oppose us growing in the faith, trying to oppose the spread of that gospel. We learned last semester in Daniel, we see in the book of Acts, and there shall be, as, Jesus, as the time of Jesus' return approaches, there shall be a time of trouble such as never been. Through many tribulations, Jesus, um, Paul teaches, we must enter the kingdom of God. Ladies, suffering is not a part of the Christian life that can happen, and then it's over and life goes back to normal. It is normal for most of the world. We don't talk much about the day of the Lord. We don't talk much about his return because we're not that concerned about it because we're not suffering. But our brothers and sisters who are suffering around the world, I can tell you right now, their eye is on the prize. They know they live in between two pain-free worlds. Suffering is normal in most of the world, and it will become normal here. Yet... The suffering that threatens our hope in God can instead deepen it. I think this is why we have a tempter who wants to pull us away. He knows that if in suffering we place our hope in God, our hope in God will produce greater hope. In any affliction, especially persecution, but in any suffering, there's a temptation to think that God is either angry or mad, angry or powerless. Ladies, when you face suffering, when there is opposition to your faith, it is Satan that is angry. God is not angry. He poured all his anger out on Jesus at the cross for you. He is not angry, but Satan is angry. He does not want to see us saved. He does not want to see more come into the kingdom. It is Satan that is angry, and he has only allowed a measure of power by God until God's purposes are accomplished. And when God's purposes are accomplished, when the last one comes, we are told by Jesus, when the last one comes to faith, Jesus will return and he will destroy the enemy for eternity with the breath of his mouth. No battle. Just his breath. Paul knew this. And that's why he writes in Romans, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that these sufferings come through God's hands of love, that they produce something good. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings. This doesn't mean we're happy about them. It means we can find joy in them because we know that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. It makes me wonder if this is why we are so tempted by the enemy when we are suffering, because he knows this is the greatest producer of our hope in God. It proves we're God, and it purifies us in God. There was a necessity for Timothy to get to Thessalonica. The Thessalonians needed to be reminded of the truth. And Timothy and Paul and Silas needed to hear from the Thessalonians. They were suffering too. And them hearing that the Thessalonians were standing firm helped them stand firm in their own opposition. And ladies, we are no different. Christianity is life together. It's reminding each other that we live in between two perfect worlds. In a world that is anything but perfect. But a world in which the perfect Savior came to die to set all things right. 
We need to remind each other that life until he returns is hard, but hard produces life. Last Thursday night, Adriana and I had a chance to, and I got permission to share her story with you, had a chance to pray with one of our new sisters here tonight, a, um, a, a young gal who is new to the faith in part because of the faith of many of you um, and your prayers. And she and her fiancé, both new to the faith, are facing a lot of opposition. They are in families that are really strong and have strong family identities. And so them coming to faith has created much opposition during a time that should be beautiful is very hard. And when we asked her how she was doing, I was so grateful that she was honest and said it was hard. And so Adrienne and I got a chance to pray for her. And as we prayed for her, she began to cry. And she was so surprised. She said, I didn't realize I was struggling this much. I didn't realize I needed prayer so much. She came alive with the encouragement. And we were so encouraged by her honesty. And even asking her about sharing her story from what her response to me, I could see that she's, she's looking towards how this opposition will produce a good work in her and how this opposition will produce a good work in her family. And maybe in time, as she continues to stand firm in the Lord, her faith will be used to bring them to faith. We have women in this room who need us to pray for them. Knowing the nature, and they need us to be face-to-face in their lives. Knowing the nature and the necessity of life together, Paul gave himself to nurturing life with the Thessalonians. Paul was relationally invested, and he continued to invest. He was so emotionally invested. Paul was unable to breathe as he waited to hear from Timothy. And again, this was like a 220-mile journey. They think it took a couple months for him to hear anything from Timothy. And Paul says when he gets the report that he now lives because the Thessalonians are standing strong in the Lord. Paul is basically saying that he would have died if their faith had failed. But what's really interesting is though though he now he can breathe, he doesn't breathe a sigh of relief and move on. He remains emotionally invested. He still wants to get to them. He still is affectionately desirous of them. He still wants to socially invest in them. There is no greater news for Paul than to hear that the Thessalonians remember him kindly, that they want to see him as much as he wants to see them. And even though he's been given this great news, he keeps praying feisty prayers. He doesn't settle for that. He wants to see them. Why was Paul willing to keep investing himself emotionally? Why was he willing to keep having his joy so tied up in these Thessalonians? Why was Paul willing to keep investing himself socially to do life with the Thessalonians no matter what it cost him? Paul gave his heart, not recklessly, but purposefully, in light of the day of Jesus' return. For on the cross, Jesus had given his heart, not recklessly, but purposefully, in light of the day that he would return for Paul. Paul knew this. Paul was fully convinced that he was Jesus' crown. And when we are convinced that we are Jesus' crown, then our sisters become our crown. 
in, the, in Isaiah 53, an incredible passage. Look at it tonight before you go to bed. It's the suffering servant. It's the prophecy of the Messiah that would come and suffer. And you will see how Jesus fulfilled it to the letter of the law. And there's this one phrase that is so fascinating. Isaiah 53, 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And what Isaiah the prophet is telling us is that as he's hanging on that cross, Suffering with the weight of your and my sin, he saw who we would be on the day he returns for us, and he is satisfied. We were his joy. We were the joy set before him. Paul got this. And because Paul knew he was Jesus' joy, the Thessalonians were his joy. Scott Saul's the most beautiful thing in the world, according to Jesus' people. Paul got this. Paul knew he was one of those people that was beautiful to Jesus, and therefore the Thessalonians were beautiful to him. The Thessalonians are Paul's glory, his crown, because Paul knew he was Jesus's. Nothing for which Paul could be more thankful than to see the Thessalonians set apart for the day of Jesus. And for this, he'll just keep on investing himself. He prays he can return. And he prays, don't miss this, in the meantime, that they invest in each other. That their love that he sees in them, he affirms it, and he asks for it to abound more and more. Why? So that their hearts may be established firm for the day of that return. That they might be a part of each, and being each other's crown. This prayer sent to the Thessalonians is for us. It's a prayer from God's heart, that our hearts be established together for the coming of Jesus. Will we? We have an opportunity here at Sister to Sister to grow in relational intensity. I know that freaks some of you out. And I know it excites other ones of you. Depends on where you are on the playlist, right? For some of us, this will mean unlocking our hearts. For others, it will mean to give our hearts purposefully not recklessly. We want to give our hearts so wholeheartedly that we'll do and say anything to get people to care about us. It will mean to give your heart purposefully for our joy to be irretrievably bound in one another's faith in Jesus, not one another's care for us. To be, to grow in relational intensity, to be relationally inventive. We have the opportunity here and for those that we love outside of sisters to sister to pray feisty prayers that don't replace action but lead to action. To treat obstacles to being together as real threats. To send, to write to those we are not with. Think about the women who are not even here tonight. To accept and to seek out encouragement. To give our hearts and our lives, not recklessly but purposefully. To continue to invest in one another. Because if we're honest, we're all lacking in our faith. We're all falling short somewhere. Some of us in a lot of places. Are we willing to teach each other, to hear from each other, to fill up what is lacking in each other's faith? To give and receive truth, even or especially hard truth? To invest in one another with our eye on the day of the Lord. Because let me tell you, ladies, when he does return... I can promise you this. There will be no other glory. There will be no other crown. There will be no other joy on the day of his return than seeing each other be presented to him.
there is no other joy than seeing those we love, those we've invested in, those God has privileged, we've been privileged to have in our life, be presented to him on the day he returns. So tonight we have a chance to do all of this. Life together, for together there's life. Father, we thank you for your living word. And I pray that you would allow us to increase and abound in love for one another and for all so that we may be established, our hearts blameless in holiness before you, our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. In Jesus' name, amen.